title of today's sermon is Collusion with Darkness. It's taken from Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37. Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to join together with others to worship you. We pray, Lord, that we might be thankful for the babe born in Bethlehem who went to the cross to bring salvation to all men. Help us, Lord, to enjoy that and to experience it abundantly in our lives. Now, may our time together in the book of Matthew encourage us to live faithfully and godly as we await the return of our precious Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Gayla Benefield, no relationship to our own Benefield family, was a lifelong resident of Libby, Montana. She earned her living by reading the utility meters outside the homes of the folks in her town. As you might have guessed, it gets really cold in Libby, Montana. And over the years, Gayla had the opportunity to meet most of her neighbors in that small Montana town. Gradually, she noticed that an extremely large number of middle-aged men who were at home during the day when she read the meters were on oxygen. Gayla's own father would die at the age of 59 from COPD, which she attributed to the years of hard work in the town mine. A A few years later, Her mother died unexpectedly of respiratory issues as well. She thought that something just didn't seem right. She kept thinking about her parents and all the men that were at home during the day with oxygen tanks and her little mining town. She didn't know it at the time, but the mine there brought forth vermiculite, vermiculite, which is used in fireplaces to insulate them, also acoustic panels, and many of the fireproofing that goes into homes and businesses. The town used vermiculite all over the place as a soil conditioner for their homes insulation, on the playgrounds, and even under the high school football field for padding. What Gayla didn't know was, and that she would find out much later, that the vermiculite dug from the mine at Libby contained dangerous amounts of asbestos. When she finally put these things together, she thought that everybody in town would want to know the truth about what was causing so many people to die so young in Libby, Montana. However, she wasn't well received when she spoke with her longtime neighbors, close friends, about what was causing the health issues in her town. And in fact, many became upset with her. She continued to gather evidence and to speak out about the problem until 2002 when the federal government determined that Libby had a mortality rate 80 times higher than anywhere else in the country. The evidence mounted, and yet people still refused to believe it. One observer in the local newspaper noticed that it was not ignorance, but willful blindness to the truth. 
Willful blindness can be a legal concept which speaks of having the necessary evidence to make a clear decision obvious. And to ignore that evidence requires a willful choice not to acknowledge it. All of us at some point have chosen to be willfully ignorant about something that is so important. In our text this morning, Matthew will show that the Pharisees are suffering from a willful blindness about the person and the works of Jesus Christ. That is, they can deny his fulfillment of the promised Messiah King if they just willfully remain blind to the evidence. Jesus offers a sober warning to them about willful blindness and a sober warning to us about blindness to the gospel message. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, which is found on page 969, where we will pick up with verse 22. I suffered from willful blindness for almost 50 years. I lived with a terrible delusion that the Chicago Cubs were the best team in the National League. I sincerely believed that they could win the World Series every year. I believe truly that, that this was true, despite the fact that they finished at the bottom of their division year after year. So, to counter my willful blindness, I played the victim card. That is, their losses really weren't the players' fault, but it was the fact that they played day baseball. Or it was that they lived on the, in the middle of the country rather than on one of the coasts. Or that they lived on the north side of Chicago and played in a decrepit ballpark. Or no free agents wanted to come to play for the Chicago Cubs. Even the name of my beloved home city victimized me. As you know, Chicago is called the second city. The Cubs were always in the second division. Ah, but then 2016 came, and you know what? Sweet home Chicago, the Cubs won it all. Now all I have to do is wait another 107 years for another victory. Not all excuses are true. We often play the willful blindness card in our own lives. When we willfully remain blind by rejecting the clear evidence that lies before us. For me, the truth was the cub stunk. We lie about our circumstances in life, oftentimes to ourselves. We use dumb excuses to be blind about the obvious truth in our lives. Think about this for a moment as we begin to study this text. There is a man that will stand before Jesus Christ who is blind and mute. He is under the control of a demonic spirit. I wonder what he thought his problems were that led him to such a state. Was he willfully blind to his own circumstances? I don't know. But let us continue examining the text which we began last week. We're going to pick up with verse 22 in Matthew 12. The sad details of this man's unfortunate life are given to us in the setting for this conflict that will take place between the Pharisees and Jesus. The blind and the mute man, I believe, is a figure a metaphor of what is actually taking place in the lives of the Pharisees and many in the state of Israel. 
This man is not central to the story. It's not central to the event. He's simply a prop that's used to focus the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Notice in verse 22 that a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Very simply stated, straightforwardly put, the man is brought to Jesus. Now, he's not sick necessarily, if you will, but he is hopeless. Obviously, he's tormented day by day, not so much by his blindness and his muteness, though that had to be an issue, but with his demon possession. He was inhabited by the demonic, which had caused him. The side effects was that he became blind and mute. We know that this, however, this man being brought to Jesus is not a trap, not a prop used by the Pharisees to kind of catch Jesus as we saw last week because verse 24 tells us that the Pharisees knew nothing about this event until much later. What we do know about this is that the man was under the power of the evil one. He can't see where he wants to go. Someone must lead him. He cannot hear what he wants to hear. He cannot hear instructions nor the prompting of others. This possession of his body by demons had caused blindness and dumbness. Now, I know a lot of people who are not demon-possessed who are also dumb and blind. The Pharisees might have been an example of that. Men with all their faculties who were really dumb and blind to the person and the works of Jesus Christ. So the Lord is standing there when this man is brought to him and he is asked to heal him and the Lord does so. So this is a miracle, as the text says, the verse tells us, of healing, a miracle of healing. He does heal this man in three specific ways. He heals him of his blindness, he heals him of his muteness, and he heals him of the presence of the evil spirit. The text says that he is healed. If we would look back to chapter 9, verse 33, we would find that Jesus healed another demon-possessed man, but there it reads that Jesus cast out the demon. Here it says Jesus healed him. We see the crowd's response, the people's response to Jesus' healing and casting out of this demon in verse 23 when we read that all the crowds were amazed and they were saying to one another, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? First thing we need to notice about this verse is that the people were amazed. I was amazed when the Cubs won the World Series, but that would pale in comparison to seeing this kind of event taking place within my personal experience. The word amazed used here by Matthew and the only time that it is used by Matthew in this gospel, is a much stronger word than the word that we're used to seeing in these times when people are really overwhelmed. There we usually find the word marveled, but here he is amazed. The folks were dumbfounded, no pun intended, and spontaneously asked the important question, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? 
In the Greek construction of this sentence, the expected answer, of course, is no. But it leaves open to the possibility that they could be wrong. The folks are starting, if you will, to take serious these claims by Jesus that he is the promised Messiah. Hence the term, the son of David, being applied to him by the people. That implies that he would be the expected Messiah of Israel. The question, again, in Greek, expresses both doubt and hope. They just really weren't sure. Could this be the Messiah? They were almost convinced. They were almost convinced by the miracle they just saw, but they were left wondering, is it maybe could be? But they weren't completely swayed by the evidence that was before them. But it was starting to make inroads in their minds, in their thinking. Most importantly, in their musings, um, they had exclaimed this wonder out loud, and that had gotten back to the Pharisees. And of course, you know the Pharisees had rejected Jesus as being the possible Messiah outright. They had settled on the fact that Jesus was just colluding with the Russians. I'm sorry, colluding with Satan. He was colluding with Satan. Remember, they had accused him of being in league with Beelzebub. They were not about to fall into the trap that the people had fallen into in their mind, which was, maybe this could be him, but we're not sure. They had rejected completely that Jesus was the Messiah. They were completely blind to his person and his works. So when they heard the folks openly musing about this possibility, they became enraged and exploded with anger. Here we find the Pharisees' reaction in verse 24 to the people. The people thought maybe this is. And so the Pharisees went to the people and they made this accusation that Jesus did his miracles not by the power of God, but through the power of Beelzebub. This man, they said, casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Notice they do not deny that Jesus did miracles. They couldn't for everyone saw and heard of what he did. The only way that they could possibly destroy Jesus was to destroy his reputation by saying that his powers came not from God, but from the devil. That was the absolute worst thing that you could charge him with. Sorcery doing the works of the evil one through incantations or powers from the devil. Jesus, they said, was empowered by Satan rather than empowered by God. He is of hell rather than of heaven. Now, this became the Pharisees' talking point about Jesus when they were with crowds. Now, you need to understand that they didn't just make up this charge out of whole cloth. No, it came right out of their handy list of man-made rules in the Mishnah. Uh, it's found there rather than in the Torah. Specifically, we find this text in Sanhedrin chapter 7 and verse 4. I don't know, were you able to get that, Dan? Or... Okay, if you could put that up there. Um, 
It states that to practice sorcery in any way, in verse 4 at the very bottom there you can see, was to be found committing sorcery, which was a capital offense. And so when they heard the folks in Israel talking about Jesus and attributing his works to God, they identified him really as a one who was inhabited by a demon himself and doing it by the powers of Satan. And therefore, the accusation was that he should be put to death. So they labeled Jesus a sorcerer, if you will. He did his works through Beelzebub. They passed out flyers calling Jesus a fake, a counter-messiah. Now, we see the answer given by Jesus to their accusation in verses 25 to 29. If you look there with me, he uses three logical arguments to debunk this accusation. We read that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Any kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, again, this is one of those texts that people often look to and and attribute uh, Christ's divinity to when it says that he knew their thoughts. How did he know their thoughts? Well, as I've stated previously, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself when he came to earth uh, in his incarnation at Bethlehem. He gave up his divine attributes in order to become a man. So how did he know their thoughts? Well, either God the Father revealed them to him, or he could have overheard their conversation about how they were going to get rid of him from a distance. Well, Jesus is going to confront them by ridiculing their presumptuous statements that he was doing his works by the power of the devil. He does this not using a quote from the Old Testament, not using scripture, but he uses logic. Jesus suggests that if he was doing such acts by the power of Satan, this would be Satan working against his own interests. It would be similar to a general shooting his own soldiers. Why would Satan, as the leader of the demonic world, fight against himself? This just doesn't pass the smell test. The claim that he was empowered from hell and that he was doing the works of hell rather than of God ran counter to the logical thinking that this would be destroying Satan's own realm. Now in verses 26, 27, and 28, we see Jesus' three specific arguments laid out before us with the conditional word, if. I've made a lot of use of that in this passage, in this text, because it it comes up so much. In Greek grammar, there are three different categories or conditions of the if clause. In this case, by the grammar, we know that it is a first-class conditional clause, which assumes that what the speaker is saying is true from his perspective. So then, the if could just as well be translated into English as since. His logical arguments begin in verse 26, where he says, if or 
since Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will then his kingdom stand? Logically, the kingdom cannot stand if he's fighting against himself. If Satan is casting out his own demons who worked for him, he's running counter to his own purposes. Now, someone famous in American history used this same logic. Do you remember? Abraham Lincoln used this exact argument when he said that the South could not secede from the Union, otherwise the house would not stand. A house divided cannot stand alone. So, in the form of a question, Jesus asked, why would Satan cast out a demon when he was already under his control? How would that further demonic, his demonic agenda? If Jesus healed this man through the power of Satan, then Satan would be defeating his own purposes through such division. The charge was not only silly, but illogical and ineffective. However, it does reveal for us the cognitive awareness of a cosmic battle that is taking place between two kingdoms. We have two kingdoms in conflict here. We have the kingdom of Satan and we have the kingdom of God. They're at war with one another. Up to this point, the kingdom of Satan is thriving. Jesus has gone around in his ministry in the Galilee, casting out demons out of numerous men and women. They were possessed by the demon and the conflict was taking place with them and Jesus was at war with Satan and his kingdom. This would not have been true if Jesus was a member of Satan's own kingdom, casting out demons or healing demons uh, on his own. Jesus' second logical argument against this claim that he was doing his works by Beelzebub is in verse 27, which also begins with the first class conditional if, better translated into English as since, so let's read it that way. Since I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Question. For this reason, those same sons will be your judges. Jesus compares his supposed act of casting out demons by the power of the devil with the Pharisaic sons who casted out demons all around the nation of Israel. As they performed their ex exorcisms, were they too doing so by the power of the evil one? Now Jesus did, just did it by a, a word. He spoke, and the person was healed. But these Pharisees, who were exorcists, had to cast out their demons through magical formulas and oaths. So the question is then, from whom does each of these parties devise, derive their power from. Did Jesus get it from the devil? Then also the sons of uh, the Pharisees, their own co-patriots, must also receive their power from the same devil. When they accuse Jesus of being in league with the, with the, in league with the devil, they are pointing their fingers back at themselves. Logically, if Jesus is working through the power of the devil, so must they be. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander as well. Obviously, the Pharisees would resent any kind of implication that their work for God was being done through the power of the evil one. So, 
Jesus uses a logical argument to point out that his work must not be done by the power of Satan, but through the power of God. He challenges his accusers to explain how he and the exorcists that they were related to, they were, after all, sons, um, your sons, they must have been empowered by the same entity. Satan cannot be empowering Jesus and not the Pharisees. Pharisaic exorcists too. That would be the logic that is being used here. These men will stand before them and judge them for making this accusation. These Pharisaic exorcists would judge them for saying that their power came from the evil one. Now Jesus continues his logical argument again in verse 28 using the first class conditional clause That begins with if, or better stated since. Since, he says in verse 28, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's clear through logic that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit of God and not by the Spirit of the evil one. The kingdom of God then therefore was present among them. This was proof of it. He was fulfilling the messianic predictions of Isaiah by casting out demons, by healing the sick, by raising the dead. This was evidence to them that the kingdom of God was now in their midst. Now unfortunately, in Christendom, in Writings on this passage, you might find a lot of people focusing on a a change in terms that is found here from what Matthew normally used throughout his book. Instead of using the term kingdom of heaven, we find, as he previously did, we find the term kingdom of God here. Some have stated that these two terms have completely different kinds of meanings. But as I have pointed out in the past again and again, In my view, they mean exactly the same thing. The only reason that Matthew used the kingdom of heaven before was because it would offend his Jewish brethren saying the word God. Now Matthew switches his use to contrast the difference between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. The problem for Jesus' critics was the visible healing that had taken place before them. Everyone could see with their own eyes what Jesus was doing. Everyone could see that what Jesus had done was good and had to come from the kingdom of God. It was not a bad thing. He was destroying the work of Satan on earth, not enhancing it in any way. So, we see here that there is a word used at the end of the sentence here that has, says the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is the word ethopasean. And it means that it was now present with, with you, as you can see by the uh, definition found in Lao and Nida. The kingdom of God has now come upon them, was present with them. It caught people totally unaware. That same word is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 16 where Paul states that the wrath of God has come upon those who reject Christ. Let me read it for you. He wrote the Thessalonians saying, do not hinder 
us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result, they are always filled up the measure of their sins, but the wrath of God has come upon them. That is, it's caught them unaware to the uttermost. The Pharisees had the Messiah come upon them caught them unaware. And what have they done? Instead of embracing Jesus Christ as the Messiah King, they have rejected him despite all of the evidence. They have been willfully blind. They refuse to see the truth. Now, I believe this is one of the clearest texts found in the Gospels which speaks of the presence of the kingdom of God with them in the person of Jesus Christ. That kingdom was initiated when Jesus was born at Bethlehem. The kingdom of God was present with them when he was incarnated into the flesh. Jesus says, I've given you all the tangible evidences that you need to know that the kingdom of God is present with you here in me. Who are the Pharisees? They're experts, supposedly, In the things of God. And yet here the king is right in front of them. And they accuse him of battling for the evil one. They willfully refuse to acknowledge all of the clear evidence supported by the prophetic pronouncements of Isaiah and other places that show him to be who he says he is. In verse 29 we see that he says, Or how can anyone... Jesus says, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Here, the Lord describes himself as entering into Satan's domain, the strong man's house, and that he carries off his property. He commits an exorcism. He heals someone who belonged to Satan and he binds the strong man in order to do that. He overpowers him and then he takes out of his house those souls that Satan had already claimed. Satan is the prince and the power of the air. His goods are the men and the women that he has taken over, he and his henchmen. And Jesus comes in and he cleans house and he takes back the goods, the lives of the people that the devil has overtaken. Jesus is greater than Satan and he defeats him. The evidence shows us that this is true. Now, as an aside, not to be mean or controversial in any way, but to be truthful. Many in the Pentecostal and charismatic camps have falsely believed, based on this text, that you can overpower Satan and his demons. You can bind the evil one. That does violence, that kind of thinking to this text. It actually promotes a kind of sorcery that God is totally against. We cannot use words or incantations of any kind to overpower the evil one. Not even the most powerful entity in this world was able to do that outside of Jesus Christ. For in Jude chapter 1, the only one that it has... Verse 9, we read this, that Michael, the archangel, Michael, you know who Michael is, right? 
the greatest angel of all, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. He backed off and said, The Lord rebuke you. Even Michael didn't think that he could bind Satan or have rule over him. No believer has any power in and of themselves to cast out demons, to bind Satan, to perform any kind of exorcism. Like Michael, the archangel, we should leave those pronouncements and judgments of evil to the Almighty himself. Now, Jesus invites the Jewish people to decide for themselves who he is. In verse 30, when he says this, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Pretty clear, isn't it? You are either on the right side of the truth or the wrong side. Based on the evidence Jesus has presented ad nauseum to these folks, these Jewish people, they were either going to accept him for who he said he was, the Messiah King promised to Israel, or they would willfully reject him and the truth. Jesus says, you are either for me or against me. Believe in me or do not believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, you are against me. Now in verse 31, we see the consequences of this rejection of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah when he warns, therefore, therefore, therefore I say to you, any sin, any blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Wow, another verse that has driven Christians crazy. Come up with all sorts of applications that are just not true. How many times have I heard the question from people, Pastor, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Clearly, they have oversensitive consciences of guilt in their lives. And I always try to point out from this verse that you must take it in context and not apply it out of context to your life. Who's the audience here? Who's Jesus speaking to? Who is this addressed to? It's not to the church. The church isn't even an entity as of yet. It hasn't been born yet into the book of Acts. Jesus is not speaking to the church to people who are saved by grace. He's speaking to Pharisees and to the nation of Israel who are under the paradigm of the law and have rejected Jesus Christ and his person and works. They're going to kill him. They're going to send him to the cross. They're going to crucify the Savior. They reject the direct evidence of who he is, even though they have him in their very presence, walking amongst them in the flesh. Jesus is there speaking and teaching and performing miracles before them. Now, as far as I know, you can, you can help me on this, but as far as I know, there's no person alive today that has heard Jesus teach, that has seen Jesus preach, 
And certainly there's no one alive that's seen Jesus do a miracle in the flesh today. Today, we believe by faith, not by sight. However, again, that has not stopped many well-meaning Christians, even pastors, from using this text to lay guilt on people when there is actually no application to their life at all. Let me show you why that is true. Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel, in particular the Pharisees, who have perverted the word of God for their own purposes and their own use. They have opposed Jesus, the word of God, to his very face. They have questioned him and accused him of being a perpetrator of the devil's works. And yet, according to Jesus, according to Jesus, there is no one alive that could not be forgiven of speaking a word against him. Isn't that interesting? The sin, according to Jesus, that is what people like to call the unpardonable sin, is speaking a word against the Holy Spirit in that time. Well, Jesus makes a dichotomy here, doesn't he, between the ministries of himself and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Putting this into context, we must understand that the nation of Israel was on the brink of making a momentous decision that had irrevocable consequences. It would change their national destiny, and it would bring the judgment of God directly upon them. They are exercising a willful blindness that cannot be forgiven on a national scale. This is spoken to the nation of Israel, not to individual believers today. They, through their ignorantly blind leaders, were about to attribute the work of God, not to the Holy Spirit, which they could clearly see it was, but to Satan. That's the dictionary definition of blasphemy. Now, as you know, today... All of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven by God and Christ Jesus. But for the leadership of Israel, acting on the behalf of the people, they concluded that Jesus was empowered by the evil one. This was a national sin committed by the people of God, the chosen people, Israel, against him, rejecting the Messiah that had come and fulfilled and shown them the evidence through the promises of God, they reject Christ, and the nation's future changes direction that day. Listen to me now. We cannot commit the sin of the unpardonable one that's spoken of. Why? Because it could only be done when Jesus was present on earth. There's no sinful act that you can do that cannot be forgiven by God today. Jesus helps us with this in verse 12, but by defining it just a bit more for us. He says, for whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be given, forgiven of him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven of him, either in this age or in the age to come. Here, Jesus says, those things that you are saying and doing against me can be forgiven. What's the last words that Jesus says on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? But when they attribute the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ to the devil, that cannot be forgiven. 
Jesus must be present. He must be doing acts of miracles, teaching the word of God to the people for this to be presently active. Now, this reinforces the point for me, and I trust for you, that Jesus was physically present with them. In no way, however, are we to understand this in any way in which Jesus is some kind of a lower form of divinity, as some have. Jesus was fully human and fully God. This was almighty clothed in human flesh. And he spoke and showed that he was the Christ. And then he said, to those who have ears, let him hear. That is, they should recognize him in his stealthful appearance in the bondage of human flesh for who he was. That's what they failed to do. We read of this not only here, but in the book of Acts, chapter 3, when Peter, speaking to Jews at the temple who refused to embrace Christ as the Messiah, he said this, Brethren, I know that you acted out of ignorance, just as your rulers also did. There it is. They act out of willful blindness and ignorance. They will refuse to reject his person. That is the unforgivable sin. It's deliberate. It's knowingly done as the Holy Spirit convicts that Jesus is the Messiah to the nation of Israel. By this act, a person in the presence of Christ condemns himself to judgment, according to this text. This is only God confirming what was already true by the choice that the person had made. This act of ignorance, this willful rejection of Christ, puts them in the standing of judgment before God. And as I said again, as a nation. Now, some folks unwittingly worry about whether they've committed the unpardonable sin today based on this. The answer is that you cannot And secondly, if you are worried about it, that's even more proof that you haven't done it since God is in your life working to convict you of your sins in the past. Any person who's desirous of forgiveness can receive it according to the scriptures for all sins, past, present, and future. You cannot reject the goodness of God, the grace of God, the free gift of God, and suffer the unpardonable sin. It's impossible. Now, Jesus gave three specific proofs that he was not doing his works through the power of the devil. He did not use scripture, however, to point this out. He used logic. The logic that was used was that all of the things that he did were good, not bad. The things that he did were good and pleasing to his father. And in fact, twice We've heard the Father say from heaven, haven't we, that he was well pleased with the ministry of his Son. We saw that at the baptism by John, and we saw this at the transfiguration, or we'll see this at the transfiguration. 
These words were empowered by the Spirit of God as the Father spoke to the Son of God. But the people refused to see the clear evidence of who Jesus was. And so they would suffer the judgment for their blasphemy as a nation, as a people, in this age, in the age that is to come. When is that age to come? I suggest to you that it is the tribulation. When Israel will be punished for their sin against God, for rejecting the Messiah. It is also in the age that they live in. And we know in 70 AD, the Romans came into Israel, the 10th Roman legion, and they destroyed the city. They burned it to the ground. They burned the temple to the ground, and they killed most of the people, and the rest they deported and took to other places places throughout the throughout the empire. The full consequences of their rejection of Christ, however, would not be felt until the end times, and in particular, as I said, during the tribulation period. Today, today, a man can hear the gospel message and reject it, can he not? He can hear it again and reject it, can he not? He can hear the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and continue to reject it and reject it and reject it. And in fact, there is a Christian group that says the average man hears the gospel 60 sometimes before they embrace it. You can never dismiss the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and be committing the unpardonable sin because you can still trust in Christ and be saved. So today a man can reject the work of the Holy Spirit for years and yet still embrace salvation before he passes. Listen now. The willful blindness of the Pharisees revealed that they had an evil Look with me at verse 33. Jesus makes some helpful comparisons for us to understand this. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the nation of Israel, and he says, either make the tree that is Israel good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. The Lord Jesus gives us two comparisons from nature here. Now, I've met a lot of Calvinists in my life had a lot of deep discussions with them. And they tend to think of themselves as fruit inspectors. That is, they attempt to divine, to understand whether a person is saved or not by looking at the outward evidences of their life. Do they go to church? Do they do good stuff, especially the good stuff on our list? Or do they commit bad stuff on our bad list? You know, like spiritual Santa Clauses, they're checking you over twice to see if you've been naughty or nice. Jesus is not talking about individual believers in the church today. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's comparing the nation of Israel to a tree, more specifically the works that they have performed that God called them to be his chosen people to accomplish. Was the fruit of the nation of Israel good or bad? Is the tree producing good stuff or bad stuff? It's a question of quality by a nation. And the evidence is clear that the fruit that they produced was evil. Jesus says, the the fruit I produced is good. You've seen what I can do. I've been approved by God. I've pleased my Father. I've healed the blind. I've raised the dead. I've healed the deaf. I've cast out demons. Could a corrupt 
tree possibly produce such good fruit? Utterly impossible. But the words of the Pharisees revealed the root of their lives, the root of their thinking, the fruit that emanated from their hearts. Israel had produced a tree that was corrupt. Israel was, and all that were in it were corrupt trees. The second comparison that's made from nature here is when Jesus says in verse 34 that the Pharisees and the nation of Israel are like a brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. <laughs> Jesus would not be a politically correct person today, would he? He calls these men brood of vipers, poisonous snakes, if you will. He attacks them and says they have venomous hearts, that what flows out of their mouths is evidence of what's in their character. Their words simply are the evidence of the evil inner man. And he continues in verse 35 saying, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. They speak evil. They want to commit premeditated murder against Christ. Therefore, they are evil. Despite the fact that they had seen his miracles, the fact that they had heard his teaching, they hardened their hearts against him, and they sought actively to do an evil judgment upon Jesus by killing him. Willful blindness to his person results in judgment. That's the point that's being made. If a person or nation is willfully persistent in unbelief and rejection of Christ despite the overwhelming evidence of his person, they will be judged in eternity and in the present. Now today, such sins as adultery, stealing, and even murder are not unpardonable, and neither were they were back then. Back then. David committed adultery and murder, and yet he was forgiven. Jesus will forgive those who, with the right heart condition, will ask him for forgiveness. The Lord makes it clear throughout the scriptures, past in the Old Testament and present in the New Testament, that all sins are forgiven. Adultery, murder, blasphemy, and other sins. But the rejection of his son when he's in their presence and offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel to reject him is to reject the spirit of God and it is borne witness by their own hearts in what they say. Jesus continues in verse 36 saying, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall be given accounting for it in the day of judgment. For the believer today, this is not so. Yes, we will lose rewards, but we will not stand in the day of judgment. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, where we will either win or lose rewards. But on the day of judgment, there will be a thorough review of those who have rejected Christ, and every careless word will be brought before him and judged. But those who have received and believed in Jesus Christ receive a full pardon and are are able to escape the 
consequences of sin based on the free gift of eternal life. Now in verse 37, Jesus closes this section out saying, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What they said to him had eternal consequences. They led the nation of Israel astray. They brought it to a place of judgment, not only in 70 AD, but through the tribulation in order to convince them as a group to return to Christ and to embrace him. What can justify a person? What can condemn a person? What they say about the works of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you believe what Jesus said about himself? Have you received him as your own or have you rejected him? There are eternal consequences for doing so. Now we've heard a lot, you can put up those applications. We've heard a lot about the Trump administrating colluding with the Russians over the past year, haven't we? Frankly, if you're like me, you're tired of it. But we don't read much about Israel, the leaders of Israel, colluding with the evil one, do we? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here to their accusation that he colluded with the devil. In fact, it is the opposite. They were the one who were in league with the devil and doing his works. They led the nation of Israel to the place of crucifying the Messiah King. Despite all the evidence that had been brought before them and presented, they rejected the person and the works of Christ while he dwelt among them in the flesh and had the audacity to accuse him of doing his good works, his godly teaching through the power of the evil one. Clearly, the evidence presented did not support it. It supported the fact that they were fruit of the poisonous tree. Evil was evident within their own hearts by the things that they planned, his death, and said about him. Now Jesus uses logical arguments here to try to convince the people of Israel to trust in him. He doesn't go to scripture here. In the past, he has, as you know, he's turned to Isaiah, did not have an effect on the folks, did it? He chose Hosea 6.6 and used it several times within this very passage, trying to convince the Pharisees of who his person was. Based on that, I say to you, one of the applications of this text is we should use logical arguments when we and arguments, I don't mean fighting with people, I mean as persuasive tools, use logical arguments with people to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, at least bring them to the point where they might say, could this be the son of David? Because logically, Jesus had to be who he said he was. And to think otherwise is to think silly and illogical. Jesus appeals to the logical mind of man in presenting himself as well as the prophecies that he fulfilled throughout the scriptures. So we should never shy away from doing the same. If someone chooses to willfully reject the evidence of scripture, willfully reject the evidence of logic, then we must pray for them. 
but never think that there is no hope for them because you cannot commit the unpardonable sin today. There's always an opportunity for you to change, to trust in Christ, to embrace the free gift, and to be saved. Isn't that wonderful? Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the truth. Thank you, Father, that you are a logical, well-ordered God. That you have shown from eternity past and from thousands of years ago who you are. And you have fulfilled all of that. But you logically show us that you sent your son to die for us on the cross. To offer us the free gift of eternal life in him. Help us, Father, not only to embrace that, but to share it with others and to live it out in our life. Help us to enjoy the abundant life here and now. What a wonderful gift you've given to us. And we're so thankful for it, Lord. May you be honored and glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.